0: Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. This week we're going to follow up on the Israel situation, what's happening, what has happened, you know, since October 7th. It's been, you know, about three weeks, something like that, since the attack first happened. There's been a lot of you know, ramifications since then. So I kind of want to do an update. Um, before I jump into the Israel situation, I do want to comment quickly on what's going on with Mike Bickle. Um, for those of you who have not heard, there have been, um, credible allegations against Mike Bickle, um, concerning sexual morality. Some have even said sexual abuse and spiritual abuse. And, um, the reason why it's a big deal is because these are like several former leaders at IHOP have essentially said that, that they believe that this has happened. And so, you know, a lot of people are talking about it. Um, I'm just going to comment briefly because, uh, first of all, we don't know what's happened. They haven't released details or anything. So we don't really know what's happened. I just want to make a, a, a two quick points. Okay. Um, I think the the first thing is this. I really think um, one of the things that the Lord wants to do is correct the church from idolizing leaders, okay? I don't think it's healthy that we idolize leaders um, because all leaders have strengths and weaknesses. This is really important. All leaders have strengths and weaknesses, and the way the church is structured right now is that uh, leaders tend to be doing something like 90% of the ministry, right? If you go to any given church service on a Sunday, Um, What you have is you have a handful of leaders doing the vast majority of ministry, and most of the people in the church are receiving and watching, okay? And then, you know, what we do is we try and get some people involved in helping out in very minor ways, like ushering or, you know, doing the bulletins, or I I don't know, right? There's these, these, these minor ways, but they're not really utilizing their spiritual gifts. They're... Just helping in in minor ways, they're helping the the leaders do the work of ministry. And I've said I I think that that you know this is a, this is not how it's supposed to be, right? According to Ephesians four, church leaders, the the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists are to equip the saints for the work of service. And so our job as leaders in the church is to effectively equip believers to use their spiritual gifts. And to engage in their calling, spiritual callings and so that's why i believe it's a really part of it. all believers are to be ministers all right all believers are to be ministers they're supposed to be effective ministers and we all have we're all gifted in different ways and and the reason is because we need all these gifts operating and that's what first corinthians 12 is really about that chapter on spiritual gifts it's about how we need all these different gifts operating in the body um but the way it works in the majority of the church right now is that you have a relatively small group of, of leaders doing all the ministry and that's why we have this really unhealthy system where leaders tend to be idolized and it puts enormous pressure on, on them and but the reality is these leaders have real weaknesses and you know I just say this as a pastor. like I've definitely encountered this like when I first started as a pastor, I started with a, like a round table um, leadership We were five pastors on staff and we had you know a bunch of student leaders. And um, it was, you know, like, it was great in the sense that I was able to, I didn't feel like it was all on my shoulders, right? We had a team of people, and I could be real, and I had real friends. I shared, you know, um, my weaknesses and all that kind of stuff. Um, since then, I've, I've been in a number of different church, you know, staff situations where I've served on, on staff at various churches as a pastor. I can tell you that at most of these places, pastors can't share their weaknesses, it's very difficult for pastors to be open about their their weaknesses and that's because there's so much politics in church. <laughs> okay? There's so much politics in church and what I mean by that is you know in in most churches there's this very unhealthy culture where you know people are trying to get their way with what they want in the church and they there's like this competition between factions of the church, between people in the church all wanting Different things, and th- the problem there is that we use weaknesses as leverage to get our way in churches. Right? This is what I've seen o- often, and so what happens is, if a ch- if a leader in a church has a weakness that is becomes known, it becomes it gets exploited in the church, and so what it does is it creates a culture where leaders have to hide their weaknesses. They can't be real people. They can't share what's really going on with them, and th- and it. And it, it drives this religiosity where, where the leaders are feel this pressure to put on a, a, a show or put on a mask and not be authentic and genuine. Well, that affects the culture of the church. Everybody's like that then. and And that's why we have so much unhealthy church politics and so much unhealthy competition and all this type of things. And idolizing leaders is part of this because if a leader can't share his weaknesses, his or her weaknesses – then the church doesn't know about them. And so all they see are their strengths, right? They see their speaking. They see their all this kind of stuff. And and oftentimes there's this chasm where there's these leaders and you have to be like morally perfect. And so a lot of people in, in the congregation feel like, oh, I can never be, you know, a, a powerful minister because I have all these moral problems, these things that I struggle with, and, you know, these areas of immaturity. But the truth is this. I say this, you know, as, as a leader, we all have weaknesses, Okay, all leaders have weaknesses. And, you know, I'm, I've been a you know, leader in local churches for a while now. I can tell you that pastors have real weaknesses. I'm talking about super gifted. You know, you can be extremely mature in one area and extremely immature in another area at the same time. Okay, and that's, that's the reality. And that's what we see in Scripture, by the way, right? Like, it's really rare that in Scripture that you see someone like Daniel, Like, what was Daniel's weakness? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if it really presents almost any weaknesses, you know. Um, But pretty much all the other leaders that I can think of in Scripture, they really show their weaknesses, right? And and I I appreciate that about the Bible. Like, uh, the clear example is David, right? David, look, David committed greater sins than almost anybody else, right? Like, amazing like to you know he he slept with a woman but it wasn't just adultery because he was the king right so there was probably a pressure aspect you know some people argue that he raped Bathsheba um I don't there's no evidence of that that it was rape but there was a power dynamic in the sense that he's king and who knows if she could have said no or felt comfortable saying no or we don't know you know um so we speculate um but what's what's worse is that he tried to cover it up, and he, you know, he killed her husband, and like that would clearly happened, right? So he committed great sin, um, and yet David was still considered a great king by God. The Lord forgave him of his sin, even though it was a big one, right? And there was a price to pay, right? His the child died, um, but God didn't throw David away. He was still precious. Like we still remember David as a hero. Okay, like I feel like if if that happened today, if you have a leader that did something like that today, he would have gone to jail and we'd all think of him as like a failure. (laughs) You know, he'd never be allowed in 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 church ministry again, you know. And I just want to say that I don't think that aspect is healthy. Right. I don't think we should throw people away. OK. And that's I think the problem when I look at this situation, it seems like people want to take sides in this. I just want to love and say, like, there are no sides. We're all family, okay? Mike Bickle is family, and to be clear, I, I don't know what he did and what he did not do, but what I'm saying is that even if he did, you know, the worst, if he sexually abused people, in my eyes, he's still family, all right? He's he's someone who's been an amazing influence on me, like, he's, he's a tremendous leader, all right? And... If he did something terrible, yes, he should be disciplined like all of us, right? Like we 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 reap what we sow, okay. But my point is, him sowing evil doesn't negate all the good he has sown, all right? What I know for a fact is that he has sown so much good, all right? And he has been a blessing to so many people, and that doesn't take, that doesn't get taken away if he if he falls in temptation and does something evil, okay. Now the truth is. The evil that he's done, he will also reap from that. Okay, just like all of us, all right? We all have good and bad, and we all do both. And and all those things will show up on Judgment Day. Okay, so Mike Bickle is not going to get away with anything, all right? But w- what I'm saying is that if he, even if he did something greatly evil, it doesn't make him immediately into a bad leader. Okay, what it does is it highlights a weakness. And yes, there should be boundaries placed on his ministry in the future, such that you know, that weakness can't go unchecked, okay? All of us, I think, it's healthy to have checks on our weaknesses so that they're not running rampant, okay? So hear me. I'm not saying that abusive leaders should be allowed to continue abusing. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that, look, I've known other great leaders that I would categorize as being sometimes abusive, okay? And that's a very difficult thing I understand because when you're be- when you're... abused. It's 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 really painful. You want that person to suffer and and you want justice to be done and I totally get that. Okay? I have felt abused by leaders in the past. And look, one of the things that I've had to wrestle through is I'm going to forgive this leader for doing what I felt like was abusive to me. I'm not going to throw them in the camp of being a terrible leader. I'm not going to tell everybody this person's a, a a really bad leader. I'm not going to do that because I don't I don't believe that. I actually believe they're actually a really good leader in many ways, right? But they do have this abusive tendency or this abusive quality. And so I, I try and warn people about weaknesses in certain leaders so that they can avoid being hurt and, and abused in certain ways, right? But I still want them to be able to receive from the good that those leaders have. and having like holding these things in tension I find it's like really hard for people to do. And I get I I get it. It's hard for it was hard for me <laughs> to to go through a lot of these circumstances. Like the first time I felt abused by a leader, you know, I had to forgive that leader every day for over a year. whenever people would speak like well of that leader, I'd be like, you know, I'd get an angry inner you know, on the inside I'd get angry I'd be like, but you don't know this about that leader, right? I get it. I've wrestled you know, with the pain of being hurt by leaders in the body of Christ, okay? But what I'm saying is that as I fought for full forgiveness of that leader, what I got was a balanced understanding of who that person was, right? That yes, that person was dangerous to some degree in certain areas, but that person was also doing a lot of really good ministry, and that's, Look, that's the hard part. Okay, that's the hard part. We're all mixed in this thing, and the, and more than that, we're all family. All right. And so what I what I find is that people tend to ping pong. They go from idolizing leaders and thinking they're so amazing, and then you know if they get hurt by them or they see a major flaw or major weakness in that leader, they go to the other side where they're like they're terrible leaders. You know they shouldn't be allowed to do this. <laughs> you know they shouldn't be allowed to be in in charge of anything. You know. And I'm sorry, it it's none, neither of those things are true, okay? Neither of those things are true. This is why I, I really try and counsel people. All all people, first of all, need to learn to be followers. We all have to be followers, okay? Even great leaders are still followers of, of those in, in authority to them. It's always going to be Jesus in authority to them, right? Um, but all of us are under authority, okay? Everyone has to learn to be a follower. That's just one of the requirements in order to be entrusted with true spiritual authority okay and you know the point that i'm always making you know in this podcast is that look all of this this life is is training for the next life that is my that is my paradigm okay in my perspective okay if you never get entrusted with great earthly authority you're not a failure that's not that's not a failure okay because everything in this life is about receiving from Jesus rewards and um, authority for the next life, and so that's what I'm all about. Okay, so my point is, there's many people who've been extremely faithful in this life; they've never had high authority. Okay, and I, I wrestled through this theologically. You know, I'm thinking about, like, for example, for example, women. All right, women who, have, like, so many women throughout history, have been amazing women of God, but didn't hold positions of authority, right? For a variety of reasons, like, you know, culturally they weren't allowed to have authority, but also theologically the church hasn't believed that women should have positions of authority um, throughout much of church history, right? So you have all these amazing women of God who were never promoted in the sense that they never had great earthly authority or things like that. And, And the reason why that's fair is because I'm convinced many of those women will be great in the age to come. All right? If I had to guess, in the age to come, I think there's going to be more females in high positions of authority than males. Okay? That's my guess. All right? Because in this age, obviously there's way more men in positions of authority. Um, I feel like I see this dynamic in Scripture that those, you know, what does Jesus say? If you want to be great then you must become the servant of all right so those that are obedient in being a servant where the lord calls them to in this life they're they might be um demeaned they might be belittled they may be thought low of right um but many of those people will be great in the age to come that's why you know jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first that principle i think is very true okay so what you know what i'm getting at here is you know, when it comes to leaders, right, just because, like, people, look, uh, there's lots of dynamics that are going on, but I'm convinced that many of the greatest leaders in the age to come will be relative unknowns in this age. You become a leader in this age first from gifting, okay? If you have a very strong gift, that will catapult you into positions of leadership. Now, it is true that without character, uh, usually you'll (laughs) You'll lose that authority, right? And if you have greater character, then you'll you'll sustain that leadership over time. I think there's a true principle there, Um, but my point is it's not a perfect system. It's not okay. And there's so many biblical biblical examples of this. All right, like Jeremiah should have been a great leader, but he was rejected as you know one of the great false prophets of his time. Um, But you have amazing people like you know I I always think of you know Zechariah, John the Baptist's father is called he was a righteous man. Okay, who's acknowledged, as righteous Mary, you know, was highly honored. You know, I think in the Catholic Church they they <laughs> maybe take it a little too far. I don't really know what Catholics believe about Mary. Obviously, I know that they pray to her and stuff like that. I don't know to what degree they consider her great. I'm sure they consider her pretty great. Okay, um, but on the Protestant side, we don't really think Mary is much special, you know. <laughs> um, but you know she may be a person of great authority in the age to come. You know, my point is. All these people that had very little authority in this age, um, they're gonna be you know, glorified by the Father. We just don't know, okay? And so my point is this. It's really important not to idolize people because of their great gifts. Scripture does not say that the people with you know, the strongest gifts will be the greatest leaders in heaven. That's not how it works. That's how it works on earth because gifts are impressive to people, okay? Because we can't all do them, okay? So when you see someone with a great gift, it, you know, it's easy for us to get really impressed by that, okay? And I get that. I get impressed too. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, that person raised a dead guy? That's amazing, <laughs> right? Like, I want to be around him more, right? I get that, okay? Um, but, the, but the truth is this, that you can have somebody with great gifts, and they can have major character problems at the same time. And to be honest, it, it, it happens a lot, okay? It happens a lot. So don't idolize people. Recognize that the people with great gifts are, you know, are probably going to have some character things, and you're probably going to end up seeing them if you get close enough and you stay around those people long enough. You're probably going to see some character flaws. Um, but at the same time, we don't throw people away, right? Don't ping pong between idolizing and throwing people away. No, look, we're all family in this together, and we're all jacked up in some ways, and we're all gifted in some ways. Some of us realize our gifting more than others, but in the age to come, we're going to be far more powerful and far more gifted. The gifts that we have are just, you know, a a portion of the Spirit, okay? In the age to come, we're going to have the fullness, okay? So it's going to be, uh, you know, our gifts are going to be at a completely different level in the age to come, all right? And that's why, in this age character is the main thing that's being tested, okay? So... Um when it comes to Mike Bickle, this this section when I was planning to do this short, but you know, I'm I'm verbose, okay. Uh, when it comes to Mike Bickle, hey, I love that guy. I love him, okay? Even if he did, you know, whatever, right? Um but to be clear, he he may not have done anything. Okay. We don't know. We're gonna we're gonna find out more, I'm sure, but only the Lord knows the full picture. So no matter what happens, you know, let's let's love Mike bickle and obviously it's care for anybody that has been wronged, okay? We're all family together, right? We're all going to press thee for healing, uh, for full forgiveness. Um, and, you know, let's make the church a family, right? That's God's desire, right, that our churches, our ministries be a family, okay, we don't throw people away, we're committed to loving people no matter what, no matter what sin they fall into, okay, Um, I will say that I think in the charismatic church, uh, we do, you know, because we emphasize the gifts, right, we believe that we're to pursue gifts, that we're to utilize spiritual gifts, Um, we have a passion for that, which is a good thing, all right, but one of our weaknesses is we tend to idolize giftedness, okay, that is one of our weaknesses, and I think um, you know the the cessationist church, the church, the part of the church that does not believe in gifts, they see that dynamic pretty clearly in the charismatic church, and and they hate that, right? The hype, all that kind of stuff, which I totally get. Okay, I think they're they're right to not like that, but they're wrong <laughs> to not pursue the gifts. Okay, <laughs> it's ranks of weaknesses. Okay, and their family. All right. Amen. Enough on Mike Bickle. God bless him. Lord, we just pray that you would guide this entire investigation process. We pray that righteousness would prevail, that justice would be done, that mercy and grace would cover everyone. Um, There'd be full restoration, full healing, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's talk about Israel. Okay, um, it's been about three weeks since the attack. Um, I think there's been a lot of developments Okay. Um, the, the first thing I'm going to say is I think the two-state solution is dying. Okay. Um, I'm going to play this clip by Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss is a former reporter at the New York Times. Um, if you have not read her resignation letter she, when she resigned from the New York Times, I would recommend you Google it and check it out because she kind of explains that the New York Times has been taken over by the far left. And she's a moderate Democrat. She's a Democrat. She's Jewish. Um, if you know you know uh, much about Jews something like 80% of American Jews are non-religious okay so I don't think she's a religious Jew um, but she's a Democrat and and that's true for the vast majority of Jews in America okay they, they tend to be Democrats and they tend to be non-religious okay and so Barry Weiss fits that mold um, but she talks about in this clip about how her belief in the two-state solution is dying. And this has been the dominant, you know, solution that Americans have believed in for a long time, okay? And, and the exception to that is is on the evangelical side, right? As evangelicals, um, many evangelicals, like myself, believe that God has given the entire land of Israel to the Jews, okay? Um, but obviously that's kind of a religious perspective, right? We see those promises in the Bible and we're saying, so we think that's that's what should happen here. Um, but obviously if you're not a Christian, or you don't believe in these biblical promises, um, then you're like, okay, but what's a, what's a logical, what's a reasonable solution to this problem? And the dominant solution and the position of the United States has been a two-state solution. And that's been the solution since Israel was created, right? The United Nations gave a mandate um, you know, passed a resolution for a two-state solution. You know, some of the land would go to the Palestinian Arabs and some of the land would go to the Jews. And um, obviously the Arabs were not happy with that at all. And so the Arabs attacked the Jews and they have been attacking the Jews on and off, you know, for you know the past 70 years since the nation was founded. And so that's what's been going on. And uh, what you're seeing now is that people are... are not believing anymore that the two-state solution can work. Okay? And I actually think that's progress. So here's the clip.
1: But as a liberal Zionist Mm -hmm. and not a religious Zionist, I have always believed that I don't care what holy history has happened in a place, if it can bring peace and save Israeli lives and save Palestinian lives and bring peace to the region, give it back. It doesn't matter.
2: And... So you would give back the entire West Bank?
1: I've always believed in giving back the West Bank if it would bring peace. Unfortunately, in the wake of this week, that view of mine that I have held for my entire adult life has been shaken to its core. How can I... Like, what would that look like for the security of Israel to simply give it all back? What happens if Hamas or another terrorist group comes to power there? The pullout from Gaza was instituted by one of the most hawkish prime ministers in Israeli history, Ariel Sharon. And yet the majority of Israelis and the majority of the Jewish world supported it because that is how desperate they were for peace. And I think that one of the shatterings and the reckonings of this week is, what do you do when your neighboring population does not actually seek peace? Like what, what? It's not that the people don't, but the leadership doesn't. What do you do? I mean, if you the go, leadership
2: they elected, yeah,
1: yes. What does that mean?
2: Right. What does it mean? This is the question we're all wrestling with. When we had Sam and Eric in here, I brought this point up many times. I mean, I, I. Well, I mean, obviously I don't know what the solution is, but I don't think anybody does. That's why it's, it's going on, right? That's why it's an unresolved issue. It seems to me like a physical separation of some kind is the only answer here.
1: But there is a physical separation and Israelis called it a, a security barrier and Palestinians and their supporters called it an apartheid wall. Right. There is a physical barrier
2: but but gaza relies on israeli electricity water supplies for the people there to survive that's why it's not it's not a workable solution isn't it isn't that the real reason
1: well i think the real reason it's not a workable solution is because a group that has in its charter the explicit annihilation of the jewish people as its reason for being is 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 ruling over
2: They fundamentally don't accept the existence of Israel. Let's be honest, right?
1: Let's be honest. Yeah, guys, let's be radical
2: truth here. Well, no, what I mean is all of this stuff about how, you know, uh, you need to make peace, you need to do this, it's all bollocks. Because if these people don't accept the right of the state of Israel to exist in any way, how can you have peace? How can there ever be peace if these people want to see Israel wiped off the map? Quote, unquote. How how can you have peace? How is is there gonna be peace? I don't get it. I don't know.
1: I gotta be honest with you. Like as of this morning, peace is the last thing on my mind. The first thing on my mind is how can Hamas and the threat that it poses be destroyed? I agree.
2: No, And, and it's the right reaction. It's understand Hamas, Israel has to destroy Hamas. There's no question about that. But ultimately, if we're talking about civilian lives and people living and surviving, in Israel and in Palestine, at some point, peace is going to have to be made. And I just don't see what that looks like. I don't get it. I don't, I don't see what the solution is.
1: I have to be honest today. I don't see what the solution is either. Yeah, that's fair. And a lot of, a lot of the slogans that I've written and, and chanted for my life, uh, my entire life about a two state solution, about the ability for there to be peace, about, I I feel mugged by reality Mm -hmm. in this week.
0: Alright, so that was Barry Weiss you know, talking about how her belief in the two-state solution is dying. And I, I actually think that's progress. Okay? And what I mean by this, what I mean by that is this. I said in, in the last episode that, you know, as a Christian I believe that God is sovereign and that, you know, when we're talking about who gets what land that God in the scriptures very clearly says that he's the one that decides that. Okay? And That is this is a big worldview difference, right? Because this is I believe the biblical worldview you believe that God Apportions land and that he removes people from land He gives them more land and that and he does that um, in relation to his judgments and a nation's righteousness If a nation is more righteous, he gives them more land something like that right, and I would say that there is definitely an exception to that in that he uses some nations to judge others. And so what you see in, in some of these judge judgment nations is that he gives them a lot of land, and then quickly catastrophe happens to them too, and they, and they lose it. And so I'm thinking of like, you know, um, the Mongols. I'm thinking of like Alexander. I think you see that pretty clearly with Alexander. Alexander conquers a huge empire, and then he dies very young, right? And his empire split up uh, amongst the four, and... Of his four generals and um, I'm just saying I see this pattern in history where you have these nations that are not necessarily super righteous but what happens is God gives them authority to judge other nations okay so he's judging other nations through this nation but if but generally speaking if you see a nation that um, acquires land for and holds on to it for a long period of time. I generally think that's because that's a judgment from the Lord for their righteousness, something like that. Okay. Now, obviously, a lot of people are going to take exception with this because I think this is a very biblical worldview, and unfortunately, most Christians are not even educated on this particular aspect of the Bible, right? We don't talk about this aspect much, right? But this is obviously a very big deal if we're talking about geopolitics, right? And this is is one of the major controversies in the earth is who deserves what land. And there is no good reason from a humanistic perspective, meaning a non-biblical perspective. You're just trying to reason, okay, who deserves what land? There's no good reason, right? Obviously, you have Native Americans in America who are upset that you know the white man came and took their land and there's a lot of bitterness on a lot of these on the, a lot of the reservations and you know a lot of people especially more especially on the left are very sympathetic to that yeah like didn't we just take their land and i will be the first to admit i think there were some wrongs done by you know, the early American government, you know, I think they broke some promises to the Native Americans, and I think there was, you know, evil done. But at the end of the day, I do believe that it was a judgment of the Lord to give the land to this this U.S. government, okay? And obviously, people are not going to be happy with that, but I, I think that's the the best explanation. I think that's what Manifest Destiny was all about, by the way, right? When we talk about Manifest Destiny, that was the belief in the early American colonies that... um. That God had given the land from the Pacific or excuse me from the Atlantic to the Pacific, right to the u s that that was our destiny, okay I think that was a prophetic word, okay I think that was a prophetic word, and people believe that okay and I think there's a lot of truth in that all right um but my point is there's 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 no better understanding on the humanistic side, okay because whenever you're talking about okay, well, do the Indians deserve this land well, then the question is well how much should we give the land back? <laughs> you know, like, is anybody really down for that? And not many people are down, even though they don't have a good justification for why we should continue to retain the land, right? Except that you can continue to go back. Meaning if we, if we were to give land back to the Native Americans, you know, which tribe, okay? Like, okay, we give it, um, you know, we can give it to the Navajo tribe. Except perhaps the Navajo were in that land before because they took it from another tribe. Right? And should we go back and give it to that first tribe? And it, what's the idea here? That whoever was there first gets the land forever? <laughs> is that how this works? Yeah, you, you have, your right to the land is forever because you found it first? And, and nobody really believes that. So my point is there is no clear understanding of who deserves what land. All right? And obviously we're running into that when it comes to the, the state of Israel and the Palestinians. Who deserves that land? And that's not a question that you know the humanistic perspective has any real answer for all right and so um the prevailing wisdom has been well hey there's two groups that really want the land you know they want it more than anybody else (laughs) so let's do this let's have them share the land okay and um the jews were happy with that the arabs were not okay and um for many years i think the paradigm for most americans was well the arabs feel that way because they were there and they feel like they have a stronger claim on the land all right and so basically we were trying to work with work with them like hey how can we reach a solution you know is it that you want this city to be in, included in your piece of land right and And Americans have been trying to think like that, like, hey, how can we reach a compromise, okay? Um, But I think the key piece that's been missing and the reason why this two-state solution has not worked is because we've not been thinking from a religious perspective. And the most of the people in that region who are Arabs are thinking from a religious worldview, okay? Uh, Look, if you're a Muslim, you believe that it is the destiny of Islam to take over the entire world. Like that is the goal, that's how you you reach the goal, okay? The goal of Islam is world peace in a sense, okay? Because Islam will conquer every other people group, will conquer every other nation, and will install Sharia law all over the earth. And once we all have the same law, we worship the same God, then we'll have peace, all right? That's, that's the idea, all right? Um, so if Islam has controlled the Middle East, you know, for hundreds of years and is supposed to be spreading out from there through jihad, all right, how can you have the, the center of the Middle East, the small piece of land, the size of New Jersey that we now call Israel or Palestine, how can all all of a sudden that not be Islamic, right? And, and it's, it's even more offensive because it, it includes Jerusalem, which is the third holiest city in Islam. Um, the Dome of the Rock is where, you know, in Islamic belief, Muhammad ascended to heaven. All right, so this is a big deal. You can't lose Jerusalem. All right, and, but you have to understand from a Muslim point of view, it, this is offensive. The idea that the Jews would take any land in the heartland of Islamic territory, okay? Okay. And that's the part that, you know, Westerners, you know, it's not that they didn't know about it. They just didn't take it serious enough. They're like, well, you know, they're, they're going to get over that or we can you know, figure out a way to do it. But Barry Wise here, and I think not just her, I think many are starting to understand a two-state solution is not going to work. All right. It's not going to work. And it's not because Israel is against that okay, Israel is pretty consistently for a two-state solution. They want a two-state solution. They want peace, okay, even if they have to give some of their land away, all right? Um, but the the Muslims are not, all right? Um, the, uh, you know, the Houthis from Yemen have officially declared war on Israel now. Why the heck do they care? Because they're they're Muslims. They're strong Muslims, Okay? Why is Iran constantly funding and trying to sabot- funding terrorism against Israel and trying to sabotage Israel? Because they're Muslims, okay? The- that's the worldview that's driving them, and a two-state solution is not satisfactory to them,? Okay? And so I think a lot of people are waking up to the, the realization a two-state solution is almost certainly not going to work okay, because it's a humanistic solution to what is a religious problem, okay. Um, and so the question is, you know, where do we go from here, right? I think what will probably end up happening is I think Israel will eventually take ownership of all this land. I, I think that is the will of the Lord, and of course I'm guessing, okay, I'm guessing, Um I think that's the will of the Lord. I think they'll end up taking ownership of all the land. Now we're a far ways from there because even if they do, you know, even if they were to take over Gaza, um, you still have the West Bank. The West Bank is the, is the bigger portion of the Palestinian territories that includes Jerusalem, and that's that's the part that's way more important to Muslims around the world. Okay, um, the Muslims are not going to be happy about giving up Jerusalem completely. Right, especially if Israel were to come in and tear down the, the the Dome of the Rock that's built on the Temple Mount, where the ancient the, the historic site of the Jewish Temple was. Right, if the Jews were to tear down the mosque that's there and build a new temple, I mean that might be that might be you know a world war. Like all the all the Muslims around the world might be de- might be declaring jihad at that point. Okay, um, so I'm saying we're we're a long ways from that. You know, um, but I think that's what's probably gonna, eventually going to happen. All right, and we'll see. We, we don't know how this is all going to play out, but I do think um, the big question for America is: Okay, what what do we do? Like, what where do we lend our power and our support? Okay, um, and I I think and I hope that where we will go is to supporting Israel, letting them deal with the Palestinian conflict um, in the ways that they deem fit. Okay, without us trying to you know mastermind everything and um, because the American position has basically been, hey, we just want peace between these two peoples, and we're going to fight to have peace. Um, but I think more and more American leaders are waking up to the fact, like, hey, there's literally nothing Israel could do to have peace. There's nothing they could do, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, if if they if they I think if they offered, you know, ninety percent of the land of Israel, I still think they would get rejected. Okay, now they may not. I mean, maybe the Palestinians would would be smart and be like, okay, we'll take it, <laughs> stick all the Jews on this 10% of the land. Um, but I think I still think they would still have plans to take the rest of that 10%, okay? Um, because again, this is a religious issue, all right? And most of the people in that region are driven, uh, most of the Arabs in that region are driven by religious worldview, okay? And it, it's important that we understand this. Okay, so that's number one, the two-state solution is dying, okay? Um, the second thing I think we've seen in the past three weeks is that um, the woke Thing the extremeness of wokeness has really been exposed, especially to American Jews. I think American Jews again, who are overwhelmingly overwhelmingly um, Democrats, and I'll say this: they're not just Democrats; they're leaders of the Democrats. Okay, if you look at Joe Biden's cabinet the leaders of all these different positions. There's a lot of Jews up in there. <laughs> okay? Because, look, I, I, you know, I've said this before, but Jews are smart. Okay? They're smart. They work hard. There's a reason why they're so successful. Um, and um, they tend to be leaders in the Democratic Party, um, which is why it's tough in the Democratic Party right now because m- most of the Jews are fairly moderate. Okay? Moderate Democrats. Okay? Um, and... And that's because they do still have biblical heritage, right? There's a still a lot of, of biblical culture that they have, even if they don't even believe in the Bible anymore. But that's that culture gets passed down, right, through the parents um, over generations. And um, because of that, it's, it's it's been keeping them from going hardcore to the far left, most of them, right? But what's happened is because they've embraced the far left, the Democrats, um, because it, it helped them beat the conservatives, Right? that's what happened the moderate democrats embraced the far left because it helped them beat the republicans and 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 helped them get more power um but i think now many of are realizing that they have allied themselves with something that's actually really evil okay and um th- this is this is really unfortunate you know the jewish people have been the major preachers of marxism throughout the 20th century all right they were the major preachers of Marxism in Europe, um, but what you've seen is that when the when the Marxists come into power, um, because it's it's uh, Marxism is is a a worldview of power struggle, okay? So it's not about what's fair; it's about whoever takes power gets to do, gets to have their way, all right? And so whenever you know you're driven by that worldview and you finally get power, you seize it. Um, it tends to be, you know, you, you, you take as much power as you want, and the people who are idealistic in the sense that they hope that those who would take power would share, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that's never how it works, right? And what's happened is that this Israeli conflict has really awoken the far left, and what you see is you see outright um, support for Hamas. Okay. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Okay. But that is not how many people are, especially young people see Hamas. Okay. Like look at this. This is um, a Harvard caps Harris poll. Okay. I have the data here from a pretty recent poll and they asked a bunch of questions. One of the questions was in general, in this conflict, do you side more with Israel or Hamas? Okay. Now, 84% 84% of Americans side with Israel. 16% of Americans side with Hamas. I'll just say that, that is insane. Okay, that is insane that 16% of Americans side with Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization. They just committed so many atrocities. Okay, that, that is amazing because the way that the question is, is worded is not, you know, Palestinians. It's Hamas specifically. Okay, so 16% of Americans support Hamas versus Israel, which is crazy to me. But the crazier thing is it's it's all about age, okay? If you're 65 or older, only 5% of, of people 65 or older support Hamas, okay? If you're 18 to 24, which is the youngest demographic on this poll, 48%, 48%, roughly half, of young people support Hamas. Like, like, that is insane. That is insane. Okay? 18 to 24, we're talking about college kids and those that just graduated from college, half support Hamas, a terrorist organization. That is insane. like, it's hard for me, it's hard for me to process that. I mean, and I've been, you know, yelling about the radicalization in colleges for a long time now, right? But the point is this, those of us on the conservative right have been yelling about this radical radicalization, but what's happened in the past three weeks is that finally, and I say this, like, finally, some moderate Democrats are like, Realizing, OMG, our colleges have become radicalized. <laughs> you know, like, dude, we've been yelling about it for like 20 years now. <laughs> like 20 years we've been yelling about this. I literally, you know, I showed data that said that something like 95%, it's not exactly 95 it's, it's around 95% of donations from Ivy League staff go to the Democratic Party, 95%. And I share that with, with moderate Democrats. And they're like, yeah, so. And I, it, it, if that bothers me so much, because what it shows is that they they don't care that the system has become super corrupt as long as it favors them, right? And I've and I've tried to point out no, what, but how do you think that happened? How did it happen that the universities became dominated by Democrats and a lot of moderate Democrats? I'm talking about moderates, You know they don't want to think too hard about that. They don't. Well, you know, like Republicans are stupid. You know, like you know, conservatives don't like to say they want to go out and make money because they're greedy and all it, like these types of reasons. And I'm like, it. it Look, I want, I want to love him say this. Moderate Democrats have much more in common with moderate Republicans than they do with the far left, in fact. okay. But because the far left was allied with them and they, and they shared power in the same political party, they fell for all of their lives, like hook, line, and sinker. All the demonization that the far left has done of the moderate right the moderate left, like, they bought it all, right? Like, oh, yeah, Trump. Ugh, yeah. He's a racist, bigot, homophobe, right? He lies constantly. That that was all what was being preached by the far left, and the moderate Democrats, they bought all of it. They're like, yeah, yeah. And then what started to happen is that some, like a handful of these moderate Democrats, started to, to be like, but wait a second. What about this? And I'm talking about guys like Elon Musk, all right? Started, to go, but wait, what about this? And guys like Tim Poole and guys like Joe Rogan, okay? These were all moderate Democrats. And now it's guys like Bill Maher, all right? And these are all, you know, moderate Democrats. And they started to wake up and be like, you know, Bill Maher, because of like the COVID stuff. He's like, wait a second, what, what are we doing with all this COVID stuff? And he started to question it. And then all of a sudden he's getting slammed as being a far right, alt-right Nazi okay and that's the same play that the far left was doing to the entire right you know like the moderate right and the moderate Democrats were buying it all they're like yeah yeah all those Republicans they're all racist homophobe bigots you know that you know belong in another century until they started questioning some of the stuff themselves and and now they're getting canceled now they're the ones getting you know attacked and that's exactly what's going on here okay because what now, what you have with the Israeli situation is that you have many of these moderate democrats who are now starting to say wait a, wait a, wait a second we don't we're not on the same side of, as Hamas right <laughs> you know like, wait a second Hamas is, 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 is a terrorist organization, right? And now what they're finding is that many people that they're allied with, like, no, they're freedom fighters. <laughs> right? they're, they're fighting for freedom. This is what liberation looks like. This is what decolonization looks like, you know? And now some of these modern Democrats, especially the Jews, are like, wait a second. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. They're literally raping and murdering Jews they're going around all of Israel murdering Jews and you're saying they're freedom fighters wait a second here and what's happening is many of these moderate Democrats especially the Jews are waking up that they have they've been massively deceived okay and look the truth is this I, I'm gonna say it again because I think it's an important point moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans have far more in common okay with one another all right. We have far more in common, but what's happened is the far left has managed to drive a strong ways because they demonized the right, and that served the purpose of the moderate Democrats so long as they felt like they were the ones controlling the Democratic Party. Okay, But what is actually happening is that they're, they've they been losing control of the institutions of the left. All right. That's what that, that resignation letter of Barry Weiss was all about. She realized we lost control of the media to the far left. All right, we thought, we moderate Democrats thought we were in control, but they're the ones who are actually in control. And they took that thing over. And they took over big tech. Okay, and they're the ones who are, they've taken over a lot of places that the moderates felt like they were the ones in charge. Okay, and now it's come to a head here because you have, you have these American Jews who are very influential, okay, in the Democratic Party. And now they realize that the far left is not their friend, okay? The far left is their enemy. The far left will absolutely buy into all the anti-Semitism, okay? And that's because, look, anti-Semitism, Christians have a much better understanding of this, okay? Look, humanists have no clue about anti-Semitism. All right? I heard Sam Harris recently talk about this, and he, and he was talking about, like, anti-Semitism. I don't understand anti-Sem- anti-Semitism. I don't understand. It doesn't make logical sense to me. Why do people hate Jews so much throughout history? All the time it pops up why. He doesn't really get it, okay? And that's because it is a spiritual thing, all right? It's so clearly a spiritual thing, all right? And this is one of the ways that you can discern what is from God and what's not from God. It says you, you will know them by their fruit, is what Jesus said. You know, when you're judging false prophets, you will know them by their fruit. And what we're seeing is the fruit of the far left is on display when it comes to this issue in Israel. All right, they are showing that the anti-Semitism is a strong vein in the movement. Okay, and look, they've been lying about it, of course. Right, it's always like, no, I'm not anti-Israel, I'm anti-Zionist. That's that's the way that it's been, you know, sold for decades now. And by the way, that's what many moderate Democrats believed. Okay, I'm not anti-Jewish, I'm anti-Zionist. But now many of them are waking up and realizing that people on the far left were lying about that. All right? It's not actually anti-Zionist, it actually is anti-Jewish at its core. All right? And that's because there's a there's a spiritual component to this. And if as it takes over as the far left has more and more influence in America, we're going to see more and more anti-Semitism. And that's exactly what is happening right now. Okay? That's exactly what's happening right now. And I, I just, look, I just make this clear. The best friend the Jewish people have are evangelical Christians. Okay? The best friend the Jewish people have are evangelical Christians because we believe the biblical promises. Okay? We believe that when God said, you know, the descendants of Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. We believe that promise. Okay, and we believe many of us through prophetic revelation. Okay, that God has told us to be a blessing to the nation of Israel. Okay, and so many of us are devoted to defending Israel, to blessing Israel. And again, I, I was trying to clarify it's not an it's not an uh, unconditional def- defense. It's not like you know a Jew murders somebody, we go nope, the Jew was right. <laughs> it's not that. Okay, but it is. Um, a recognition that there is a demonic assignment to eliminate the nation of Israel, and we are dead set against that, and we will defend the nation. That we believe they were they are beloved by God for the sake of the patriarchs, and that we, as even as Gentile Christians, owe the nation of Israel a debt of gratitude. Okay, um, in the early church, the Apostle Paul would take donations from the Gentile churches. Um, to give to the, the the community in Jerusalem, all right, to the Jewish believers, all right, and I believe there's a there is a biblical principle there that we as Gentile believers owe Israel a debt of gratitude, okay, because we share from their spiritual blessing, all right. They look, Abraham was faithful to God. God found Abraham, right, and God showed mercy and grace to the world through Abraham and his descendants, okay, and that's why it doesn't mean. That Israel is, you know, superior to every other nation every other way. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, I'm not some kind of weird, you know, racist <laughs> against my own people <laughs> for the sake of Israel or something like that. That's not what I believe. But I believe that um, you know many of my heroes are Israelites. All right, we're talking about all the biblical figures. These are all Israelites, including Jesus, obviously. All right, and I've been incredibly blessed through the faithfulness of Israelites, and as a believer today. Um, I owe them a debt of gratitude and their people. And these are their descendants. These are the children, their children's 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 children, right down to the generations. This is exactly what the Lord says, that, um, you know, I'm the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, Um, and I will not leave the guilty unpunished, but I will, you know, I forget the exact language, but I will judge the children of those who hate me to the third and fourth generations. But um, for those who love me, I will show kindness to them to a thousand generations. Right? That's what he says and that's exactly what's going on here, right The descendants of, of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and David and all these great men and women of God um, he shows kindness to their descendants for a thousand generations. That's how it works in God's economy okay and that's why I support that I understand that's how the Lord sees it and he's my Lord. He's my master and I believe his promises that there is going to be a great restoration of the Jewish people. We believe the Lord has called us to love Israel and to be grateful for them, right? And the way that Paul puts this, even though they may be enemies concerning the gospel, right, they are, they are beloved because of the patriarchs, right? And we try to understand the Lord's heart. Why does the Lord love these people even if they reject Christ, okay? And the reason is because they're the children, the grandchildren, the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of those who are very precious to him. Right, and so he shows favor on them. That's how the Lord thinks. Okay, it's not that they deserve it. Okay, um, and and I feel the same way. Okay, they've been a great blessing. The Jewish people have been a great blessing to the nations. All right, and a great blessing to me personally. All right, and so because of that, I am devoted to defending the Jewish people, to blessing those that God has put His blessing upon. Um, and, and defending them, especially from unjust accusations, okay? And that's what we have going on here today, all right? This conflict that's going on is, you know, one of a, a, a thousand things, you know, I've, I've said before that we are living through the greatest brainwashing um, in Western culture. I stand by that. I think it's I think it's really clear at this point. You know, I, I don't know how, you know, people don't believe that, but <laughs> I know there are still lots of people that don't believe that, Um Okay, but that's the second thing. All right, wokeness has been exposed especially to American Jews, okay? Um, the last thing I'm going to talk about is um, the threat that radical Islam poses to the world. Radical Islam is is the most dangerous um, threat to the world over the next generation, for sure. Um, and it might be for many generations. I don't know, okay? Um I think that it's very likely that when the scriptures speak of an end-time Antichrist kingdom, all right, um, it's 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 Islam. It's warning about Islam, okay, and that's because if if you know Islamic theology, all right, it, Islam believes that they're going to take over the world through force, okay, um, but they believe that there is going to be an end-time figure, okay, called the Mahdi that's going to to return, and all Muslims are bound. To follow the Mahdi when he reveals himself, okay, and join him in waging jihad against the rest of the world okay it is it is literally designed to have an end time war okay is designed for this, okay um and I think it's really helpful to understand the paradigm of um you know Jordan Peterson talks about it, I think he got it from Carl Jung. But you know he talks about this dynamic about how people think that they have ideas, but that's actually backwards. It's not that people have ideas; it's that ideas have people, and that's a much better way to understand history. And I I agree with him. Okay, and my framing of it would be slightly different, and it's that you know people are concerned about you know human conspiracies. Like there's a lot of talk about you know the WEF in conservative circles, right? That there's this human conspiracy, and I do believe there are human conspiracies, obviously. But in, from my perspective, the great conspiracies are not human conspiracies, but they're spiritual beings that are conspiring. But these spiritual beings, they use ideas to control and manipulate people. So if they can get people to believe ideas, then they can control the people. Okay? By the way, it works the same way with God. Right if you believe in the ideas of Christianity, then what happens then you be a, then you become a force for Christianity in the earth okay, and so that's why this idea of faith is so central to the bible, but it it's central to the to to human history right um you cannot understand the twentieth century without understanding Marxism because Marxism was the dominant ideological movement of the 20th century and continues to be a day today, right? It seemed like Marxism had, had basically been killed off in the late 20th century when the, when the Soviet Union collapsed. But what we see is that there, there's been a, a evolution and a rebirth of Marxism in another form in the 21st century. And it for sure has been the great movement in the Western world. Right. But what's happening is Marxism is the main thing that we're fighting against right now in the Western world. Um, but Islam, Islam is like a sleeping giant, okay? We haven't had to worry too much about Islam because the, the Western world has been so much more powerful than the Middle East. So we haven't really had to worry too much about Islam. But that is almost certainly going to change sometime, okay? And the reality is there's you know 1.5, 1.6 billion Muslims, something like that, um, and there is there, you know, the, the way I always think about it is that, you know, the the three great ideologies of the earth, okay, right now. And the, there's more, but there's three really big ones, okay, and that's humanism, which is the dominant ideology right now in the West. There's humanism, there is the biblical worldview, which is Christianity and Judaism. I believe there's you know a clear link between the two, and then there's Islam. Okay, from my perspective, these are the three great. Worldviews that are out there, okay, and the way it kind of works is that um, uh, humanism defeats Christianity, right like if it's a rock paper scissors, right, humanism is paper <laughs> and Christianity is rock, okay so humanism defeats Christianity, and that's because when a nation becomes Christian, the temptation is they become arrogant and become proud, and then they become humanistic. All right, so God lets them fall into humanism uh, because it, that's part of the test. Okay, will you retain humility and gratitude to the Lord, and you continue to keep His commands even when you're prosperous and rich? That was exactly what happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy six or eight, around there. Right, be very careful to remember the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you become, when you go into the land, you inherit the land, you become rich and wealthy, you will say, um, "We've done this for ourselves," and forget about the Lord. Right, so be very careful. Um, that your children, that's really the, the command, is that you'd pass down the knowledge of God to your children. And that doesn't happen um, in many Western countries because we became very Christian, we became very blessed, very powerful, and then we become humanistic, okay? So humanism defeats Christianity, um, but Islam defeats humanism, okay? Humanism does not know how to fight against Islam because Islam is, is, is about coercion and force, okay? Islam takes control, it's willing to lie, all right? This is this is why you know Europe is is being defeated by Islam right now. All right? this in this generation Europe will probably be defeated. We'll see if there's a major fight back. Okay, um, but generally speaking, Islam defeats humanism. All right? and the question is, um, well, then what beats Islam? I think Christianity beats Islam. All right, we're gonna see, you know, because there, that is the the end time. <laughs> you know, that is the end time battle okay where you know if islam is the final antichrist empire right um can it defeat you know christianity i think we're going to see okay um i think you know christianity will be incredibly oppressed but will emerge victorious and obviously we believe that that jesus is going to return that mix um but we shall see okay um but my point is this: in this next generation, we are going to see Islam rise more and more, especially because it's going to—it's—it looks like it's going to take over Europe. Okay, and that's my point here. The Western world needs to wake up to the very real danger of Islam. Okay, the Western world is sleeping about the danger of Islam. It's inviting Muslims in, in the name of being compassionate, and and again, it's because it's this—it's this, it's this um, twisted humanistic understanding of compassion that is not thats not wisdom. OK, now you cannot welcome all these refugees in in the name of compassion. You don't understand what you're welcoming in. OK, and that's because in humanism, you know, they're so used to fighting against a Christian perspective. They don't understand what they're what they're up against when it comes to Islam. OK, Islam is taking over major portions of Europe um, in this generation. The problem is once once you get a foothold, um, one of the problems with humanism is they don't have babies. <laughs> all right. Humanism feeds off Christianity. Okay, so it, it it relies on Christians having babies and then not discipling their babies well, <laughs> and then and then it, it takes over their babies, something like that. Okay, um, but Islam has much more babies. So if, if Europe is, is dominated by humanism, but then you have this Islamic, you know, uh, minority group, they're gonna have way more babies, okay, than the humanists are gonna have, and even if they just even if it's just through time. that's they'll take over Europe all right but it's gonna be more than that because what you see now is that in countries like France France is you know I think 10% Muslim or more now okay Um, now that minority is large enough in France where they are outright defying the government right they're doing pro Hamas demonstrations um, all the nation even though it's illegal in France but what are you gonna do with this minority that's this size and that's this dedicated to its ideology all right. Europe doesn't understand the enemy that they've invited in. And on that same note, I just want to say America's in a similar position. Okay, It's in a similar position. Um, what we see is that the conflict in Israel has caused many who are more radical in their understanding of Islam to um, start to foment. Okay, So they're doing pro-Hamas demonstrations. Um, but what we've seen is, is minor terrorist attacks. We've seen attacks against Jews in New York. We've seen, um, you know, I I think there's much more Islamic activity than we tend to be aware of, okay? Um, I think it's very likely that we have um, jihadist terrorists infiltrating the United States through our southern border. I think it's almost certain at this point that this is happening, okay? And the problem is, once they get um, you know, installed in American society, it's very difficult to remove. And, um, you know, Trump is a really fascinating and important example. Like you can tell the anointing on somebody by the demonic um, resistance that arises to them sometimes. Okay, like we're clearly seeing that with Israel. All right, God has a purpose for Israel. They've been chosen, meaning they've been anointed. That's what anointing really refers to. They've been chosen by God for a purpose, and there's an anointing on the people group and then there is a d- demonic hatred and anger that arises to try and thwart that purpose okay i want to suggest that it's you can see the same thing with president trump okay you can see the same thing with president trump that there is an anointing on his life that arouses some serious demonic opposition okay like what people call is they call it trump derangement syndrome all right because from you know a humanistic perspective a conservative humanistic perspective it just looks like these people are deranged like they're crazy they they're unhinged by trump they can only see his negative and they can't possibly understand what anybody would like about him right and they're constantly lying about him and defaming him and you know they're they're suing him to keep him from being president like they're pulling out all the stops to stop this guy and you know from people on the right were like there's these people are like deranged right that's what they call it but i want to suggest that, no it's a it's a demonic type of opposition that we're seeing okay it's so one of the ways that you can tell i think that Trump has a real anointing on his life, okay? Now, I, I have to stop and clarify this because a lot of people, when they hear that, they think, I, I think Trump is like Jesus or something, like the the second coming of Jesus. And of course it gets, you know, <laughs> like that narrative goes out that these evangelicals like love Trump more than Jesus or something like that. So let me be clear, okay? I I don't think Trump is a Christian. He might be, you know, I, I don't know. But if I had to guess, I don't think he is. I, I think he has tons of character flaws. that seem pretty obvious to me, all right? what i what i'm talking about is that there seems to be an, an anointing on him to accomplish a certain task right and in the past i've likened him to jehu um, and if you're familiar with the with jehu in the bible he's a ruthless man okay you would not think of him he's he's not like a wonderful figure biblically speaking but w- he's very good at one thing okay and that one thing is he's perfectly suited to beat jezebel Okay, that's his, that's his thing. All right, and Jehu's perfect for that. Like, there's this really fascinating scene where Jezebel, and for those of you not familiar with the story, Jezebel is the queen of Israel. She's married to Ahab, and she's not an Israelite, right? She's a foreigner. She's a foreigner. I can't remember what people group. But she worships these other gods, and she tries to get all of Israel to worship these other gods too. So she's a really bad influence on Israel. Um, the problem is that she intimidates Elijah. Like, Elijah's scared of her. Which is crazy, because you know Elijah is literally calling down fire <laughs> on the 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 soldiers that are coming after him. You know, but he's scared of, of Jezebel, right? Because it speaks of this this um, demonic anointing that's on her, right? Um. In anyways, um she seems to be very powerful. And then there's this encounter where Jehu is is anointed um, to fight against Ahab and Jezebel, and he goes to their house. And Jezebel, it seems, in the text, like she tries to seduce him. Like she puts on makeup, she tries to She tries to talk to him, but Jehu's having none of it. Like he won't speak to her at all, like, and he just kills her, right? He, he orders the servants to kill her. Um, he's just ruthless, okay? And when you look at the fruit later on in his life, it's not like he was a great king, okay? He wasn't a great king. But what he was is he was perfect for that specific need okay, Israel needed a ruthless man to deal with this particular evil, okay, that was intimidating and flattering, we call that Jezebel, right, it still lingers in, you know, some Christian charismatic speech, we talk about the Jezebel spirit, which is a manipulating kind of control spirit, okay, and Jehu is perfect for that, and that's the argument I'm making for Trump, it's the same deal. Trump, you know, he's not a perfectly moral person. I don't see him like that, for sure. Um, But what he is, is he blows my mind with how resilient he is. Like, if I was in Trump's shoes, I would have got so discouraged. (laughs) Right? Like, within a month of being elected president, I would have, like, watched what CNN was saying about me, and the New York Times was saying about me, and I would have been like, God, they hate me. (laughs) Right? Like, like I, I would not have been able to handle. But Trump, you know, he's his first, you know, term in office. He had something like ninety-eight percent negative media coverage, something ridiculous stat like that. And he just shrugs it all off, like it's like it, it seems like it's nothing to him. That is crazy, right? My point is, he's super strong in this area um, that I think has defeated many other would-be great leaders. Okay. Like when I think about like George W. Bush, I like him. I don't love him, but I like him. But to me, from my perspective, he was very intimidated by the media, he's very intimidated by that you know, that thing that just made fun of him. And, you know, like that was the narrative when he was president. The narrative was that George W. Bush is an idiot, right? He's a buffoon. And they were constantly playing that angle with everything that he did. And I think that that definitely affected and influenced him. Okay. And what I'm getting at is that Trump, um, he's not intimidated by that. And I think that's his main strength. And that's why he's particularly suited for the demonic strongholds that he has to battle. Um, to accomplish what I think is the Lord's purpose in America, okay? And, you know, what you see is that the number one thing that Trump has a conviction on, all right, it, it's not abortion, okay? Obviously, like, I have a conviction on abortion, um, but Trump was was faithful to give us what we wanted on the abortion issue, which was conservative justices, right? He did that amazingly, even though he didn't have a conviction on it. Like, that's, that's fascinating to me. Um, but what you see pretty clearly is that his number one conviction is the southern border, he wants to build a wall like that is clear right and he has been labeled as you know a bigot as racist like just constantly and it's clear somebody who is you know on the right i'm like why number one why is he so passionate about this issue and number two um, why are they lying so much to stop this right and Again, I as a as a Christian, I'm trying to look beyond what's just the practical realities of this. I'm trying to look into what are the spiritual what's the spiritual backing here? What's happening spiritually speaking cuz I think that's the more important part, okay? And um it could be that this issue of Islamic terror is coming up through the southern border. I mean, that could be the the real issue behind it all. I don't know for sure. Okay? I don't know for sure. Obviously, there's other things involved with the southern border. There's, you know, tons of unregulated immigration in the sense that we have all of these people that are weighing down our social, our social network, you know, all the Medicare, Medicaid expenses that are going to... Yeah, I, I think all that's part of the calculus and American jobs, right? I know Trump talks about that. But again, as a Christian, I'm trying to see beyond, like, why is this such an area of clear spiritual warfare? Okay? Um, and I think that this could be a big reason why. We'll see. You know, we'll see. All this, you know, I'm 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 doing my best to discern it to guess. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to understand these things. But th- these are some of the dynamics that make me fairly confident that Trump is going to be the nominee. Um, and I think it's likely he'll be elected. Okay? And to be clear, I'm not saying that I, I heard that from the Lord. <laughs> okay? It's nothing like that. But what I'm saying is I see clear areas of anointing here. Okay, to me, there's a clear anointing on Trump's life. Um, there's a clear purpose, and I see the demonic opposition against him. All the the incredible lies and the manipulation, um, and I saw go to a whole new level with Trump. You know, and um, that's why it makes me it makes me think. Okay, th- th- there's spiritual forces behind these things, and. As a Christian, I'm trying to see what's happening spiritually speaking, and what I see is that there is a great end time battle, um, and Islam is at the heart of it. At the heart of this thing, okay, and it is it is growing. Just let me put you this way: there is no humanistic answer to Islam. All right, if you ever like, I've listened to Sam Harris talk about this. You know, he talks about the the hope that Sam Harris has, and if you're not familiar with him, he is a um, you know he's a, a moderate Democrat. He's a liberal, um, but he's famous for being an atheist. Okay, so he's not thinking from any kind of religious perspective. But his, you know, he said uh, that he's not under any illusions that he's going to be able to turn 1.6 billion Muslims into humanists. Right, that 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 can't happen. Like, right? so his hope is that it can it can be they can be turned into moderate Muslims. Right, that's his hope um but he, you know when i've heard him talking this he's he, he he's skeptical <laughs> that that can happen right because he's seeing the issue clearly right and you know sam harris gets in a lot of arguments with people on the far left and they accuse him of being you know racist and islamophobic and all this kind of stuff because he points out something that's very true is that it's it's not so easy to interpret the quran in a moderate manner okay it's not so easy Right in in Christianity, it's much easier to interpret the Bible in a in what we would consider a more moderate manner. Like you don't see you know Christian terrorists all over the place, okay? And I I, I get that on the on the far left, they're constantly trying to point to Christian terrorists all over the place. But uh, any anyone who's objective on this understands that there if if you know the Bible is really teaching. You know, radical Christian terrorism. Okay, then you would see some of those figures in the Bible, but you don't. Okay, Jesus was not a radical Christian terrorist. The apostles they mar- they gave themselves up to martyrdom, you know, rather than kill their enemies. Okay, you you can't you can't make that argument very easily. Okay, but that's not the case in Islam. Okay, in Islam, Muhammad was a warlord. He was a conqueror. He did not interpret jihad as just an inner struggle against your your bad desires, okay? That's how some moderates interpret jihad today, right? It's an inner struggle against evil desires. Okay, you gotta do a lot of mixing with humanism to, to get a, a moderate interpretation of the Quran, okay? The truth is, and Sam Harris, um, Ben Shapiro's pointed this out, many many people who are honest about these things have pointed out, look, if you if you're honest with the Quranic text, it results in a a, a violent um, takeover where Muslims are encouraged to kill their enemies, to coerce them, right, to make them submit to Allah and to Sharia. Okay, that is what Islam is designed to do. Okay, and there is no, like I said, there's no humanistic answer to that. You can try to make a bunch of schools and re-educate the muslim world according to moderate islam i assume there's going to be attempts there's probably are attempts like that happening in you know europe um but the problem is like i said islam is a totally different beast than christianity okay it, it it's it's fundamental to the nature of islam you, your you your coercion is is core to the doctrine okay so when they sense manipulation their natural response is no, push back and overcome it, beat it, right? And um and, and you see that. Islamic Islam is much more militant, okay? And that's why it's particularly suited to defeating humanism, all right? Um, there's no humanist answer to Islam. And so the big question is what happens when, number one, the Islamic world unites, okay? That is one of the great dangers. The British literally, you know, after they, left the Middle East they used to control that whole area um, after they left they literally just drew lines on a map okay like the nation of Iraq they just made that thing up okay Iraq didn't exist before um, but what they did specifically was they drew the lines on the map to try and keep the Middle East divided okay Iraq they made the you know the biggest country in that in that area um, but they intentionally put Kurds in Iraq, you know They put some Shiites in, in the land of Iraq, and they put mostly Sunnis so that it would be internally divided. They wanted the region to be divided so that it would not unite, so they didn't have to deal with a major Islamic power like the Ottoman Empire had been before. Okay, So there are huge movements in, in the Islamic world to try and push unity. The, the current president of Turkey would like to revive the caliphate Okay, the Caliph is, you could think of him as the Pope of Islam, all right? And in in Islam, the, the Pope is not just a religious figure, but also a warlord, okay? And, and there was some of that belief going on in medieval Christianity, right? That you could have the Pope leading armies or commanding armies. Um, in Islam, there's no problem with that. It's like, yeah, of course, Caliph lead armies, all, all good, all right? the president of turkey would like to revive the caliphate and and that's that's a huge danger if like say sunnis started to unite you know underneath a single religious figure um, and that could eventually be a political figure we're talking this is a major long-term danger to the world all right well i hope that was helpful god bless